Okay, ready? All right. You're listening to the Poshcore Podcast. I'm Alan Toth. And I'm... I'm... Oh! <laughs> We're currently in Jamaica filming volunteer projects for the next episode of Poshcore Shorts. Um, and my sister Jessie has come along as our still photographer. So she's taken photos of all of the shoots we've been at. Should I say something? Yep. Oh, hi. Um, so you've been on a couple of these production trips with me. You went for the very early part of when I was filming Poshcore mm-hmm. and in South Africa. And both times that we've come, I've always made you go meet with a bunch of Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, so what can you tell me about your impressions of Peace Corps volunteers now after having met them right in, in their element? Uh... What struck you? Well, well, the first thing, I mean, similarly, like, I kind of chuckled at, like, the Peace Corps people problems, mm-hmm. as I called it. It was funny because they're like, yeah, I had a goat under my house and I couldn't sleep last night at all. And they're like, and the other one was like, I had a goat too. Those goats are loud, you know, and this was their biggest dilemma of <laughs> the moment was that a goat was keeping them from sleeping. So, Jesse, I was wondering if you could tell me, what did you notice about the process of shooting photos in, uh, you know, shooting uh, interesting cultural photos in Jamaica? Um, Well, I noticed it was quite different from South Africa in that South Africa, the people were much more intrigued by the camera and wanted their pictures taken and were kind of asking you to take right. their photo. That was the challenge, was getting them not to be in love with the camera. Right. And then here, it's very different. I thought it would be, I mean, I was kind of ignorant, thinking it would be similar, but many people were very kind of uncomfortable with the camera and were like, you. I mean, one guy at the fish market was like, you should ask before you even take the camera out. And I had the lens cap on, and I had just asked him, like, can I take your take the, a photograph of the fish? And he said, "You would, you would ask in the U.S. before you ever took the camera out," which is not necessarily true. No. But, um, <laughs> but he doesn't know. Yeah, and there were many other experiences where you know people just seemed really uncomfortable with the idea of having their picture taken. Yeah. Um, so I just after a while, like in South Africa, I was clearly the white tourist who was taking photo after photo after photo. And then here I've kind of just given up on trying to get pictures of actual people and portraits of people, but I gave up on that and just started taking pictures of the ocean and pictures (laughs) of you. (laughs) So every time you come with me on one of these production trips, it's always kind of a mix of uh, sort of just total... Disaster. Total disaster. A yes. few times. Yeah. Yeah. How, how in, is that? How how have you felt about about that? As you are explaining to me, you know, maybe because of your Peace Corps service, you kind of are able to kind of go with the flow and not notice mm. all of these disastrous things that happen on a daily basis. Whereas, like when I'm with you, it's kind of more more anou- pronounced or more evident, more obvious. Mm. So people, this happens to me quite a bit, when you introduce yourself to people, they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a documentary filmmaker. And they go, oh. Mm -hmm. 
Like, but what do you do? Like, what do you do all day? I've had that question several times. Um, so I wanted to like make a podcast episode that explains what a documentary filmmaker does on a day-to-day basis so people can understand. Uh, I just finished shooting in Kingston, actually. I went there with a, a return Peace Corps volunteer who served in a place called Riverton City, which is right next to the Kingston landfill. So our first story today is about the process of shooting in Kingston. Today's episode is production. Just outside of Kingston, Jamaica is a shanty town called Riverton City. A small community is built right on the edges of the overloaded Riverton City landfill, the main dumping ground for Kingston's waste. The landfill has a history of catching fire. Serious fires have occurred 12 times in the last 10 years. The most recent fire was in March 2015. It burned for six days and caused more than 3,000 people in the area to seek medical treatment for respiratory issues. This recurring issue has been of serious concern to the residents of Kingston. The Jamaica Environmental Trust is a non-profit environmental advocacy group. They've released a statement in response to the most recent fire, criticizing the National Solid Waste Management Authority, which manages the dump, for unsatisfactory security. Many people gain access to the dump to search for salvageable materials to sell. Commentators with the Jamaica Observer have suggested that the NSWMA is preventing tighter security measures due to the fact that the local economy of Riverton City is dependent on recycling scrap materials gathered from the landfill. I was contacted by Mark Troyenfels, a sculptor in Northern California. He told me about a group that he works with in Riverton City, which is a part of this informal recycling economy. Mark is an American who served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Jamaica about 15 years ago. He agreed to go with me to Riverton City to introduce me to some of the people who live and work right at the edge of this notorious landfill. Well, Riverton City is the uh, community that is built around the uh, Kingston landfill. Uh, um, Many of the people who live in Riverton City uh, do make their living using the dump as a resource. All kinds of things. Whatever, whatever is possible to be recycled gets recycled. During Mark's service in Peace Corps, he worked with a group of men who ran an informal aluminum foundry. They had been casting aluminum in the open air, and Mark helped them get a USAID grant to build a simple workshop. Mark is still involved in the project. He returns to Riverton every year to help develop new patterns for the group to cast. But the, the money for the USA grant went to all the lumber, the hardware, the concrete floor. Mark took me to the workshop in late May of 2015. The workshop is not officially inside the landfill. It's down the road about a kilometer away. But that's a technical distinction, as the entire area is surrounded by piles of waste. As I stepped out of the car, the first thing that struck me was the smell. It was a mixture of rot and burning garbage. We walked up to a man with thick, long dreadlocks. He was shoveling a pile of straw mixed with chicken organs. It was feed for his pigs. Mark introduced me to Tony Duncan, the leader of the project. It's a family, it's a family tradition. Tony took me into the workshop to show me his work. He purchased aluminum from a local scrap metal dealer and recast the aluminum into new products. He transformed old soda cans into pots and pans, but he also made a few decorative pieces. He showed me two decorative plates that he offered. One bore the image of a Rastafarian man, which looked a bit like Bob Marley. 
The other bore an unmistakable image of Barack Obama. Mark told me that the Barack Obama plate used to be a big seller, but that sales had waned along with Obama's approval rating. The Rasta Man plate was still a popular item, and I asked Tony to make one for me. So may I give it as, as more as serve this by in the sun. Tony casts aluminum in two-part sand molds, and he showed me the process. He put the Rasta Man plate inside a wooden frame on the floor of the workshop and shoveled black sand into the frame on top of the plate. When the sand was piled high, he got up on top of the pile and compacted the sand firmly under his feet. He then flipped the frame and carefully cut away bits of sand so that the plate was half embedded. He stacked another wooden frame on top of the first and repeated the process of piling sand into the frame and compacting the sand under his feet. But this time he put a pipe into the sand to create a hollow channel for molten aluminum to flow. Once the sand was compacted, he removed the top block and carefully extracted the pipe and the plate from the sand, revealing a perfect imprint. Once the plate was removed, he stacked the two compacted blocks, one on top of the other, so that the imprint cavity was in the center of the blocks. He removed the wooden frames and piled sand around the sides of the mold to prevent molten aluminum from seeping out. Tony made about 10 molds in this fashion and then went outside to start up a makeshift furnace. It was composed of an old oil drum and it was heated by burning used motor oil. Tony did not have a proper ceramic crucible in which to melt the aluminum, so he used an iron pot. Iron has a higher melting point than aluminum, but even the iron pot would only survive a few trips through the furnace before it burned through. Black smoke billowed out of the furnace. It would take about 30 minutes to reach a temperature that would melt the aluminum, so Mark and I took a walk around Riverton. It was a nice place. They were raising chickens and bees. There was a trailer where you could sleep. They had a water tank right there. You could take a shower under the water tank. It used to be nice. What happened? Well, time passed. Things fell apart. Mark showed me an area near the workshop that had been the site of a community garden some 15 years ago. It was now covered in piles of broken toilets. A dump truck pulled off the main road and drove to a clearing in the rubble where we were standing. The driver dumped the load of garbage into a pile on the ground and three people appeared around the pile. They waved at the dump truck as it drove away. They picked through the pile, separating the scrap metal. They were scrap metal scavengers. But I've been like all over the state. Yeah. I've been to Atlanta, Texas, oh. Dallas, Texas. I live in Oakland, in uh, California. Oh, wow. Yeah. Lucky you. <laughs> I spoke with one of them, a woman named Donna. She told me that she used to live in Queens, New York, but she now lived in Beverly Hills, a posh section of Kingston. She didn't seem too excited about revealing too many details, but she did indicate that she had some arrangement with particular dump truck drivers to deliver loads with valuable scrap metal directly to her. Donna would sell her scrap metal to a scrap metal dealer, who would then sell some of the metal to local buyers like Tony, though it was rumored that the largest buyers were Chinese corporate entities. We returned to the workshop and the aluminum was molten and ready to pour. Tony removed the iron pot from the furnace with long, heavy tongs. The iron pot was glowing red. He carried it from the furnace to the sand molds and carefully poured the molten aluminum into the hole on the top of each mold. Thick steam poured out of the molds as the aluminum quickly cooled inside the sand. The smell was harsh, a bit like ozone. The workshop was obscured in a white haze as each of the molds was filled with the molten aluminum. After only a few minutes, Tony used a sharpened wooden plank to push the aluminum casts free of the sand, destroying the molds. 
The solidified aluminum casts were still hot to the touch, so Tony held them up with tongs to inspect the work. The decorative plates and Dutch ovens which Tony produced regularly were perfect, but Mark had brought several new casting patterns to test out. A small statue of a horse and a decorative bunt cake pattern had not produced encouraging results. Much of the detail in these patterns had not been captured in the mold. They couldn't be salvaged, so the aluminum would be melted down and recast into another mold. Mark and I left the workshop to get lunch at a nearby chicken stand. I asked him about the results of the day's casting. He explained that Tony's casting method had a few inherent complications. The sand that he used for the molds would fracture due to the heat of the aluminum. Every casting would cause the sand grains to fracture and become a bit smaller, thereby losing cohesiveness. If Tony could use a higher quality sand, something with a small amount of clay, the molds would more easily hold together. Tony also used brick dust as a parting compound. The brick dust was sprinkled into the mold to make it easier to separate the aluminum cast from the sand. If Tony was able to use talcum powder rather than brick dust, there would be fewer irregularities in the surface of the aluminum cast. The problem with adopting these methods was the cost. Higher quality sand and talcum powder would not cost much, but they would have to be purchased. Mark wanted to invest a bit more money into the process, but Tony preferred to keep costs to an absolute minimum. Tony paid for aluminum scrap and nothing else. Mark admitted that it was hard to argue with Tony's philosophy when higher production costs and better quality castings might not necessarily produce more sales. So obviously this is not the, the standard way that you cast aluminum. No, I mean, there's, there's certainly easier ways to do it than the way that they're doing, but there aren't any cheaper ways. They've definitely got the cheapest process. <laughs> Tony's process allows him to recycle aluminum for a maximum profit. This is not terribly surprising, as aluminum is the easiest and most profitable material to recycle. Mark and I visited several other recycling enterprises that week. We visited one group of women who collected glass bottles from the dump, meticulously cleaned them, and then sold them back to the company in Kingston that had originally produced them. Seemingly every material that can possibly be repurposed is being exploited by someone. Valuable materials are being sent into Riverton as waste, and without any government subsidy, the people of Riverton are finding ways to reuse the materials and make money doing it. They are demonstrating that recycling can be a profitable enterprise. But this enterprise carries a heavy toll for the people who pursue it. The people of Riverton are right next to the dump. Toxic chemicals released in a major fire will affect them more acutely than anyone else in Kingston. And Mark believes that toxic air is not only a problem during a fire. He suspects that toxic particles are mixed in with the ever-present dust, which is kicked up by dump trucks on dirt roads. Mark believes that the toxins in the dust could explain the high incidence of birth defects in Riverton. When Mark and I returned to the workshop on that first day, we found a small garbage fire burning just a few meters from the road. It was on one of the piles of broken porcelain, so there was little danger of the fire spreading. I asked Mark about these fires in the dump. He told me that he doubted anyone sets fires maliciously, but that fires in the dump are often set for cooking, or for clearing debris, or to melt aluminum off of an old car. These fires just get out of hand and spread. We went into the workshop and found Tony putting the finishing touches on my plate. He promised to have it ready by the next day. He charged me approximately 15 US dollars. It was a pretty good profit margin. The metal in the plate had probably cost him about one dollar. One of Tony's partners told me later that these decorative pieces are a much better product for the group than pots and pans. 
There are many local aluminum foundries making pots and pans, so the price must be very low to be competitive. The decorative pieces that Tony produces are unique and can be sold for a much higher profit margin. The decorative pieces are also much safer. Tony works with post-consumer aluminum, which is often full of impurities. Tony heats the aluminum to a much higher temperature than necessary, approximately 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. This is hot enough to cause some metallic impurities to vaporize or separate as slag on the surface of the aluminum. Unfortunately, it is not quite hot enough to separate lead. If a bit of lead solder was to get into the molten aluminum, it would likely not be separated out in the slag. A tiny bit of lead in a decorative piece is not a health risk, but a bit of lead in a cooking pot could leach into food. In my research of Riverton, people like Tony had been referred to as unfortunates. In all the articles about the recent landfill fire, the residents of Riverton had been talked about, but no one had actually talked to them. The people of Riverton were being cast as victims. During my week in Riverton, I visited numerous failed projects, which had been initiated by outside organizations designed to help the residents of Riverton improve their living conditions. The most notable was Riverton Meadows, a housing development on the edge of town. It was a part of a government initiative called Operation Pride. The goal of Operation Pride was to build modern housing for residents of Riverton. People would be given the opportunity to buy these homes for a reduced rate in exchange for helping with the construction. Many people in Riverton signed up for the project, but the government funding fell through, and most of the homes were never completed. Those that were finished were sold at a much higher price than originally advertised. No residents in Riverton could afford the houses, and they were sold to people from outside the community. Operation Pride is just one example of a project which was imposed on the community, and which has not produced any meaningful benefit these projects don't work because they treat the people of Riverton as victims, victims who will be happy with any kind of assistance. This is an erroneous notion, and costly. Riverton City is not a refugee camp full of unfortunates. It's a community of entrepreneurs, and the people who live there are key stakeholders in local waste management policy. Their physical and economic well-being are intricately tied to the decisions made regarding the landfill. The people of Riverton don't need charitable projects to save them. What they need is representation in a new waste management plan. At the end of our first day in Riverton, I took a few minutes to clean the dust off my camera. I asked Mark if he knew why the road wasn't paved. He told me that it had actually been paved years ago. A company had been awarded a paving contract but the people of Riverton had blocked the work from proceeding until they were paid a bribe. Mark said that the bribe was paid to the community, and the work progressed, but this left the company with very little money for materials, and the work was done cheaply. The cheap pavement quickly crumbled under the weight of the dump trucks. Mark's story perfectly illustrated the dangers of casting the people of Riverton as victims, and the futility of making plans for a community without first enfranchising the residents. The National Solid Waste Management Authority has submitted a waste management improvement plan. Though the specifics are not known, part of the plan includes paving the road to the landfill. You're listening to the Posh Core Podcast. While Jesse and I were in Jamaica, we also interviewed Jordan Waldschmidt, a Peace Corps volunteer who is currently serving in Jamaica.
Following the interview, Jesse and I reviewed the footage and discussed some of the unique challenges of interviewing Peace Corps volunteers. So, Jesse, I was wondering if you could tell me what were your impressions of the, the shoot with the Peace Corps volunteer locally? Well, I was um, first struck by how modern this site is, kind of, um, you know, I had previously gone to South Africa with you and mm -hmm. um, seen the way some of the volunteers there lived, and I was actually quite shocked to see, you know, that the volunteer we were speaking to was um, working at kind of like this internet cafe, and my first impression was like, wow, this is not what I think of with Peace Corps, you know, I think more of like them roughing it. Yeah. I guess, do you want me to just Sure, yeah. Talking? This kind of like gives a quick rundown of what everything is. So um, this is the source. It's one of five on the island. And it is the newest and it's the biggest. So they're calling it the super source. <laughs> um, and these are some of the resources we offer. It's an internet cafe, Wi-Fi hotspot. Uh, we have printing and scanning services. Mm. Um, and uh, we also have computer training. And right now I'm teaching computer Oh, cool. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and this is the computer lab. This is where I teach computer class. Yeah. This is really nice. It is really nice. I felt um, very lucky. Yeah. If you guys want, we could go out in the back yeah, and I could show you. So like I said, I'm an environmental volunteer, so my biggest project here has been um, the community garden project, mm -hmm. and it's finally just taking off after, I guess I've been at site for a year now. Yeah. Our goal is like by this fall to have enough vegetables growing that we can have a little farmer's market. Oh, cool. At the that would be great. And then in that corner right there, we're going to build a greenhouse, hopefully out of plastic uh, bottles. Nice. Yeah. You know, she did some really good work for them, getting a garden developed and whatnot. But then also when we went to her uh, residence, I was just kind of like, oh my gosh, this is the type of apartment I would love to live in in the States, you know. So uh, she had a flush toilet and, you know, um, actually a very nice, big, spacious apartment. Um, beautiful kind of scenery and... You know, it was like a, it kind of seems like a getaway as opposed to like, you know, yeah. a really, really tough experience, which I'm sure it is a tough experience yeah. in its own way, but. Well, she said herself that uh, Jamaica's tough, you know, and she seemed very adamant about that point that like Jamaica's tough. So you were telling me uh, a little while ago that these um, scores difficult but not in the way you think it's difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so what did you mean by that? I think when I first thought of like the ways that Peace Corps would be difficult, it would be living conditions, you know, lack of access to maybe electricity or running water or internet or not knowing the language. Um, but I think 
it's not really, those are all things that you can adapt to in not too much time. Um, I think the thing that I've struggled with probably the most is just lack of progress um, and not getting things done. Because yeah. I think that's kind of part of my American mindset is like to feel good about my work, you need to like yeah. be getting things knocked off the list. And, um, and I think a lot of volunteers struggle with that idea of not accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. I'm a little nervous about this community garden project moving forward. Um, I really need community members to come out and participate and, you know, want to learn and be active in the whole process. And so far it's been hit and miss. How do you feel when you're like, you're working really hard on something but you can't really seem to get any community buy-in? It's frustrating. It's really frustrating because you work so hard at it. And sometimes I wonder like, was this something that the community really needs or is this just something that I want to accomplish? And I feel somewhat selfish in that like, am I doing this project for them or am I doing it more for myself? So when we were shooting the other day, what did you, did you have any thoughts about the production process or anything like that when we were shooting outside of her organization? What was, what was going through your mind? Um, you know, I, I felt like certainly she was maybe a little more open um, about her real experience um, when she was at her home as opposed to at her place of employment. You know, I think yeah. she was still being very careful about what she said and, and making um, the fact that, you know, she was reminded that, you know, you are representing uh, your country of Jamaica and, you know, not to... Mm -hmm. offend yeah. anyone yeah she uh originally when we were talking about coming and filming her she was very interested in talking about harassment and the experience of being uh sort of an you know a foreign girl young foreign girl and the amount of harassment that you receive that she receives as, as a result of that but as she said peace corps contacted her she contacted the peace corps jamaica administration and they sort of obviously like warned her away from saying anything like that. Um, but at the same time, she was warned against saying what she really wanted to say, and in the end ended up talking about something much more personal, which is her deeper motivation. We are here to serve, um, and that doesn't mean that I can't get something out of it, too, you know. It's given me a lot. Sometimes I think it gives me a lot more than I give back, and that makes me feel kind of guilty. I guess I grew up very Catholic. Um, I went to Catholic school for 12 years, so guilt is kind of a recurring theme in my life. I feel guilty about pretty much everything. Um, and especially being a volunteer in Jamaica, I feel guilty all the time. Um, just when I'm in town and people beg me for money and, you know, I try to explain to them that I'm a volunteer, I really don't make very much money, but I do make you know, enough money to get by, and sometimes I think it's too much, you know, sometimes I think I make more than what the people I work with make, even though we're supposed to be on the same poverty line. So I try to overcome that, and it's difficult for me. Yeah. And I don't know if that's one of the things that brought me into Peace Corps to begin with. So I guess coming to Peace Corps, it's kind of, it's in my own self-interest to make me feel less guilty. Yeah in a way.
So the fact that she was sort of warned by Peace Corps, don't talk about this because we don't we don't want to talk about that. No, no, no. Um, she she went right for something that most people never talk about ever, which is their deeper motivations. You know. So I actually was pretty happy the way it worked out, and this has sort of been kind of my the like process I've had to develop in dealing with Peace Corps staff. It's almost like a little bit of misinformation and a little bit of sort of like this bizarre game of chess that we play between the volunteer and myself to get the volunteer to talk about something interesting but not scare Peace Corps administration. So. Yeah, I guess I just felt like, you know, I was actually gonna go in for the, de the details of mm -hmm. like what happened, when, what did they say, what did they do, you know, and so you didn't want to push too much towards that particular subject. Yeah. Only because I've, I've experienced that when, when Peace Corps staff finds out about the interview, once they, they get this notion into the volunteer's head, we don't want you to talk about this. We don't want you to talk about this. It's kind of like a waste of a day to try and get them to talk about it because they're just going to hem and haw and they're just going to say, I don't think Peace Corps want me to talk about that. I, I'm so glad that I did this. I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity. Um, I love Jamaica. I think it's a beautiful country. It's, it's full of ups and downs, and the volunteer experience is definitely a roller coaster. Um, but I think in the end, it will all be worth it, and I just hope that um, I can be of good service to the people here. Thanks for listening to the Posh Corps podcast. Our short film about Riverton City will be available at poshcore.com in the coming weeks. Special thanks to Jordan Waldschmidt and Mark Truenfels for all their help with the production.